to the virtual podium so we can uh, light this candle. I'm not sure why he's not coming up. Good morning. Well, let's, um, we got a few listeners drifting in. I know it's an odd hour, but it's the only time uh, we could both do it. Um, and uh, today I'm publishing a piece on, on the Facebook whistleblower, actually on Pull Request. So this will be an interesting one-two punch. This is, this is a media blitzkrieg right here, David, between Colin and Substack happening at once. And uh, the topic, the topic is, I think, one that probably most readers or listeners of Polocrest don't really need a lot of background on, which is this Facebook uh, whistleblower, Francis Hogan, I believe is how you pronounce her last name, who, um, and we're going to get into this, just, I think has done an amazing, <laughs> if you consider this to be a product launch, she clearly is a very gifted product manager in that um, she's come out with a 60 Minutes hit, congressional testimony, um, a whole Wall Street Journal reveal. It has just been a spectacular, spectacular product launch. And in fact, um, you know, just what product management is, I think one of the things I want to get into. Um, but I'll, I'll shut up there, David. I'm sure you probably got topics or angles on this that you also you also want to talk about. Well, I've been tweeting quite a bit about it, but uh, you know, I'm happy to be a guest on your show. Um, welcome okay. to, to Colin, <laughs> by the way. You are a guest on my show, Purple Pills, uh, yeah. actually yes. during the beta. So it's uh, great to be able to reciprocate here and i just invited the purple pills audience to this show so hopefully we'll get some more more folks as well oh, oh wonderful um you know i was looking at purple pills and i again i felt performance anxiety you have more followers than i do which i, I suppose is okay because given you're sort of a founder investor of the platform but still my the competitive side of me could you know feels that i need that. we'll get you there okay. <laughs> we'll, we'll get you there i have an unfair advantage you know <laughs> Cool. Don't try to. What's the old saying? Don't try to compete with somebody who buys barrel by the or buys ink by the barrel. Um, something right. like that. Right, right. Yeah. Or, or, on, on this or particular platform, on this particular platform, I, I get to buy the the ink by the barrel. <laughs> <laughs> right. So, so yeah, let's 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 start on this thing um, on this this whistleblower thing. I mean, the whistleblower is such a fascinating term. Um, you know, when I when Chaos Monkeys came out in 2016 or whatever, which was in some sense perfectly badly timed. It was right before the whole Facebook thing exploded with Trump. But, you know, I did a bunch of media hits as well because I, I think I was one of the first sort of Facebook people to really give it insight. Take it. I remember I was introduced one. I can't remember what it was, but whatever. So one of these pieces of network media. And I, get in, I got introduced as the Facebook whistleblower who wrote a book. And I had to, like, stop short the host and say, uh, you know, I really don't think there's a whistle to blow here. <laughs> That's not exactly what my book is about. I mean, I certainly criticize Facebook a lot in the book and Silicon Valley more, more, more generally. But I, you know, I never saw anything that resembled like actual corporate malfeasance. Um, and so I just find it interesting, the notion of a whistleblower. I, I think, I mean, so the whistleblower thing, and we can talk about that. I mean, Dave, you probably have more, more insight there. Like it's an actual legal thing. Like if Facebook were to be penalized, she would get a cut of the, of the take, which I, as I understand, actually, I looked up the numbers that the amount of whistleblower can make is, is truly amazing. Like I, I, I looked yes. up the highest whistleblower award on the SEC website and it was something like $111 million north, north of eight figures. And the average, it was something like hundreds of millions have been given out to something like roughly hundreds of whistleblowers. So the average was like single digit millions. Um, in any case, not not to allege that she's only doing this for the money or anything, but just to indicate that the whistleblower thing is a very, it's a real legal definition that has, you know, real legal and financial outcomes for those who do it. Um, right. And then whistleblowers get uh, a share of any fines levied as a result of their, you know, of, of information they provide. And so, yeah, I mean, you know, she's depending on what happens here. If I mean, the fines against Facebook could be in the billions. We don't know. I mean, certainly they're going to try. Right. So she stands to make potentially hundreds of millions or even billions here. 
Right, right. I mean, I you know, this is the sort of asshole Silicon Valley guy. I'm like, wow, can she like sell? Like, can going forward, can whistleblowers like pitch their story? And like, <laughs> is there a cap table potentially for the payout? But that's that's me obviously being somewhat snarky. Um, so let's let's get into a little bit her claims. I mean, I, I you obviously are going to have a have a very strong take on it. My take, just super high level, I, I sort of agree with Ben Thompson, and he did a piece on it this week as well. That you know, I nothing in the revelations to me were just like jaw dropping, right? Like we know, I mean, Jonathan Haidt, who is an author I, I really like, has published research about how Instagram can often amp up, you know, feelings of inadequacy or sort of mental health issues, as can lots of media, by the way. I mean, I, you know, um, and, and, you know, the business of the election integrity team that that's been reported. I mean, Facebook actually publishes public reports on their efforts there. So I, I didn't feel it was a big reveal, like in, in my gut feeling, which I think is why it took me so long to even do a piece about it is like, well, th- this is the same media narrative we've had for five years. The difference now, of course, is that you do have a very telegenic sort of face of it, which you need to, to bring the story together. And again, she's managed her, her personal media trajectory, I think, very, very well. And so it just, you know, it is the full Aaron Sorkin journalist kind of wet dream, which is telegenic person, massive leak of documents, hated company, and then the framing of a congressional testimony. I mean, this has got like Netflix special written all over it. And so I think that's why it's taken off in a huge way. I don't, I don't know, what, were you, what, were your, what was your reaction to, to all this? Well, I, I, I agree with that. I think the, the thing, though, that people need to understand is that there's no way that this just happens like on its own. I mean, this was a carefully stage-managed production. So first of all, they have the, you know, the, they have this, um, you know, myth making around the, 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 you know, the quote unquote whistleblower, they keep her um, identity secret. Then they do the big unveil on 60 minutes and less than 36 hours later, she's testifying in front of a um, very sympathetic uh, Senate Judiciary Committee, which has wanted to uh, press these, these claims against Facebook for a while. Senate committees don't, move that fast. I mean, this testimony was planned just like the 60 Minutes episode was planned. It was all set up in advance. In fact, uh, Bill Burton, who's a Democratic operative who worked for the Obama campaign, is working for uh, uh, Hogan or I think it Hogan or Hogan. Um, uh, I, I, I think I, it's I, Hogan. Hogan. OK, so he's working for her. She clearly has a team of lawyers and PR people. So I, I just think we should now, I mean, look, that doesn't necessarily invalidate any of her claims, but I just think we should understand that this was an op um, and, uh, and then the op has a purpose, which, we, you know, we should get into. At least for at least for the people who want to use her testimony and her claims uh, to further an agenda, we should talk about what that agenda is. Okay, um, so it, well, speaking of agendas, David, one agenda item I had for this, because I, again, I go into, into the piece, because I think one of the things that I, I aspire with Pull Request is to give a little bit of the, of, of the feeling of, as the name implies, right, a pull request is like code that you try to commit to the main code base, right, for those who aren't familiar with what the term means. It's a, it's a term of art in, in, the, in, the, in, in the development environment, right? So that, that's kind of what, and so, well, let's, let me not, let's, let's not maybe deviate from what the, the thing, but at some point I want to discuss, like, you know, one of the things that happened with her, right? And, and this is always true. I mean, it happened to me when, when the book came out, right? That you do selective title inflation or deflation, right? The journalist that is trumping up your source 
status and then calls you an executive or kind of magnifies your role. And then the company in question diminishes your role and claims, oh, they, you know, they did nothing but basically, you know, fill the printers with ink and <laughs> they had no the real role in this company. And that's going on with her. So I definitely want to talk about that because I think it's very interesting the role of the product manager inside a company. I think it's in many cases, the product manager makes the, the ideal whistleblower. But if you're if we're on the tack of, um, you know, What's the bigger agenda? Let's let's keep on down that road, and we'll we'll get to the the Silicon Valley ethnography a little later. Maybe. Yeah, I don't I don't think Facebook's attack on her landed. It was you're you're right. It there was sort of this um, ham-fisted attempt by uh, was it Andy Stone to basically say she wasn't privy she wasn't privy to um, the real decisions and stuff like that. Um, not 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 really an effective take. I don't think. Um, I think y- your take is, is more accurate, which is actually there's not really that much new here. Um, I mean, there are some documents they didn't have before, but the allegations against Facebook are the same thing we've been hearing, you know, on Capitol Hill in these committees for several years. Um, and so I think that's that's the better take here is that, I mean, I think your instinct is correct that this is a repetition of the same things we've been hearing about Facebook and social networks for, for years. Um, and, you know, one question we should ask is what, why is Facebook being singled out here? Um, I don't think it's the most addictive social network by a long shot. I mean, my own usage of Facebook has, you know, dropped to near zero. I just don't think it's like that compelling at all. Uh, Instagram, I guess, is more compelling, but, you know, not, not necessarily for my demographic. I don't really use that either. Um, I personally find Twitter to be much more addictive. I wish I could actually tweet less probably better for me um we know that tiktok is much much more addictive um, but those are less attractive targets politically so they haven't been focused on um so you know the question is why 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 is facebook been focused on and um you know you gotta really say it goes back to 2016 i mean where facebook became the scapegoat for uh the election um which was just ridiculous. I mean, there's a lot of reasons why um, Hillary lost the election, uh, but Facebook somehow got the blame for that. And then ever since then, that um, that sort of calumny metastasized into um, this full-blown disinformation um, hoax that, you know, we, that basically, you know, became the whole Russia collusion uh, angle that, you know, consumed the Trump presidency. And now it's sort of metastasized into this moral panic that somehow Facebook is corrupting our minds and brainwashing us. Um, so, you know, th- this, this, um, this story has a long lineage. It's been building for a while. And, you know, and, and I think the real question is, 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 you know, why Facebook and not these other social networks? Why Facebook and not the media itself? I mean, if you're going to accuse um, somebody of or an entity of uh, driving polarization, in our society of increasing political divisiveness. I mean, doesn't that apply to cable news? Doesn't that apply to the New York Times? Doesn't it apply to all of the, the, the mainstream media? I mean, don't they make more money by feeding into the bubble of their subscribers or their viewers, giving them more of what they want? I mean, isn't it just a more manual version of the newsfeed? Um, I mean, the newsfeed in a way is just giving users more of what they want. It's, it's like an automated version of the Nielsen rating system. Um, and so, you know, isn't cable news just as guilty, if not more guilty? Um, if we're going to talk about disinformation, you just had an indictment a few weeks ago of a Perkins Co- uh, Coey lawyer who created the Alpha Bank hoax 
And you have reporters who fed the public that hoax who have never been sanctioned or disciplined. Why has there not been any follow-up on that disinformation? Why was Rachel Maddow able to post this uh, Rolling Stone ivermectin hoax just weeks ago and never had to take it down? Why aren't, you know, why aren't executives from MSNBC being interrogated about the disinformation they're causing? So if you really wanted to be concerned about disinformation, there's a lot of ways you could go. You wouldn't just focus on Facebook. And I think the same is true with these body image issues. I mean, yes, do body image issues exist for sure? Do I have two uh, teen sort of preteen daughters and am I concerned about these issues? Absolutely. But is Facebook the exclusive or even the main place that these images are, are created? No. I mean, if you really wanted to go after um, the, the body image issues that are causing problems for teen girls, you need to also look at Hollywood, at the TV shows and movies that are being produced. You would need to look at um, the fashion industry and the advertising industry. You would need to look at the music industry. You'd have to look at the lyrics of songs and the music videos that are being created. And so I don't think Facebook is unique in any way in creating those issues. Um, so, you know, the, 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 the real question is, you know, why, why is Facebook being singled out here? And I think it's ultimately to promote, and I think the, it, the, the answer came out during the hearing, which is, I think what this is all leading up to is the government regulatory body that the Senate Judiciary Committee wants to create. This is what um, Hogan proposed. And this is what the, the senators like almost uh, unanimously, you know, were, uh, you know, were endorsing is the creation of a new government oversight body like the FCC that would now regulate social media, not just Facebook, but all social media. And it would be composed of a government board. Uh, Hogan, I, I thought this was an incredible act of chutzpah, uh, even proposed herself to serve on the board, basically proposing that she be made Zuckerberg's boss in a way. Um, so this is really what it's all about, is, is, is the Senate Judiciary Committee, which has hauled up the CEOs of, of Twitter and Facebook no fewer than four times to basically berate them for not censoring enough, okay? And the objection to that was always the First Amendment. Well, they found an end run around the First Amendment because now, you know, they can't regulate a free media. The Constitution guarantees freedom of the press, but they can regulate the news feed. And so this is their end run, is they're going to create a government oversight body that will ultimately control these social networking companies who control the feed and that will control the flow of online information in a way that is more suitable to the members of the Senate Judiciary Committee. Yeah, I think you're right, David. I mean, the, the, to answer, I think one of your questions, which is like why Facebook and not Twitter is because, I mean, to be blunt, Facebook is a social network of the proles, right? <laughs> like tw Twitter is the sort of elite backplane to all media. You know, Instagram is like an influencer thing. Facebook is where, just to cite a future pull request interview guest that I guess I'm leaking now, uh, you know, Ben Shapiro, right, gets more traffic on Facebook than like most networks, actually. It's incredible. And yeah, I mean, I, it's, 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 I, I agree with you. I think at the end of the day, they're trying to, yeah, regulate free speech. And that to me is kind of a very dangerous thing. The fact that, <laughs> again, talk about getting over your skis, a mid-level product manager suggesting that the federal government and then propose herself to actually, you know, basically, Censor Zuck is, is kind of crazy, but this gets it's a it's a Harvard MBA move. I mean, only a Harvard yeah. MBA <laughs> could basically think they're more qualified than Zuckerberg to to basically be at the top of this company giving orders. Um, so yeah, but like I said, you have to you have to admire yeah. the chutzpah. Yeah. Um, I mean, back to this point on on speech. 
Um, this is not a conspiracy theory on my part. All you have to do is look at what the members of this committee are saying they want to do. They are saying that the reason that Facebook and Twitter have been hauled up there is not because they're censoring. It's because they're not censoring enough. The committee has made it clear on multiple occasions they want these companies taking down more posts, more people, uh, more voices that they don't agree with. That has been the, the, the message at these hearings over and over again. And the, the reason why Facebook is in trouble is because they're not censoring enough, not because they're censoring too much. Um, so, you know, what, so, 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 so what, this, um, what this attack on, on the newsfeed really represents is that the same people who want to control the supply of information on the newsfeed and have been, have been controlling it by deplatforming heterodox voices now also want to control the demand side of the newsfeed. What they want to do is replace the settings of the newsfeed with regulations that come from on high, managed by this government oversight board, and they are going to determine what the newsfeed shows you. And, th- you know, th- this goes back to why we have this. Uh, Facebook is like cigarettes, like hysteria. It is specifically to justify this point. It is to invalidate the consumer choice that is the basis for the newsfeed. I mean, the newsfeed, I mean, all it really does, I mean, they try to make this word algorithm into this evil sounding sinister thing. All the algorithm does, and you should speak to this, Antonio, is 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 sort of observe like what you're clicking, what you're engaging with, and try to give you more of that. In other words, it's trying to give the consumer more of what they want. Now, we could argue that you know that may not be 100% healthy for people. It might take some people down rabbit holes. But the good thing about that is that it's the consumer's own preferences that determine what they see. It's a consumerist principle. Facebook's not trying to brainwash anybody. Um, but letting the consumer decide what they want is not good enough for people who want to engage in censorship. And so what they would like to do is replace that principle of the newsfeed that we're going to give users more of what they want with a different principle, which is we're going to give you what we want you to see. And we're going to weed out the stuff that we think is problematic. And so, again, it's the demand side of censorship. Yeah, no, it's funny. Um, again, so much of the story just takes me back. In fact, in, in my post, I just linked to a bunch of Wired pieces from three years ago that I reread and I think actually hold up remarkably well, right? Like, again, it, you know, it was pretty clear where this was going. But just through a kind of personal anecdote, I remember the, the first time that I kind of freaked out in the post-election thing was Zuck's second post after the election, right? In which he sort of implied in there that Facebook would help, you know, quote unquote, fact check or whatever. And it was the first time that I think, like in the history of Facebook, that they had ever conceded that they would sort of put their finger on the editorial scale and not just let the algorithm boost content, which is what you're saying, right? And I, it, there, I literally, my job, I'm like, oh my God, they're actually opening up this Pandora's box, uh, which I, I've always thought was, has been a mistake. And I mean, I think we're seeing the final, the final fruition of it now in which the government is basically telling them, yeah, you, you, yeah, we're going to exert editorial control over something that was basically, like you said, it's just a click ranking thing. Like we're just ranking feed. And if you like it, we're going to show you more of it. If not, no. Um, and uh, it, it, it was a huge mistake for Facebook yeah. to apologize for 2016. I mean, that was the original yeah. mistake here. I mean, the reality is that people on the left had no problem with the use of Facebook when Obama used it very effectively to help get elected president. I mean, the reality is, and this is not like a partisan comment. I mean, it's just objectively true that Hillary ran a bad campaign in many, many respects. Um, she ran a less effective social media strategy. She didn't campaign in the state of Wisconsin. I mean, had she just campaigned harder in the key Rust Belt swing states, I mean, that election was determined by something like fewer than 
I think, 40,000 votes in, in three states. So there were a lot of mistakes that the campaign made, but somehow Facebook became the preferred scapegoat for uh, for her losing that election. And they never should have conceded that they were responsible for that. Now, you know, to this point about, you know, Russian interference. Okay. So there's been, I mean, this is, I think worth discussing just for a second. Um, what I would do is for people who believe that the Russians interfered in the election. Yes, they, they did. There is, there is proof of that, but that, that needs to be tempered in two ways. Number one, well, both qu- qualitatively and quantitatively. So what, what do I mean? So qualitatively, you should go, if you're concerned about this, you should really go look at the ads that were run by um, these, these Russian operatives. All I can tell you is that they're just ridiculous on their face. Um, it's written, the, the ads are written by people who don't understand English very well. Um, they also don't understand sort of American culture very well. I mean, the, the memes that they're using wouldn't really convince anyone. Uh, there's one ad where literally Jesus is arm wrestling with the devil and Jesus is saying that he supports Trump and, and the devil saying that he supports Hillary. I mean, the, the ads are just so ridiculous on their face that they wouldn't convince anybody. So qualitatively, you know, I, they, they were a pretty poor um, op by, by the FSB, if that's what they were. And then quantitatively, and I think this is maybe even more important point, you have to look not just at whether this quote-unquote disinformation took place, but the quantity of it relative to all the impressions on Facebook. And the fact of the matter is that billions and billions of impressions were created around the election on Facebook. And this was such an, these ads were such an infinitesimal drop in the bucket that they just can't realistically be claimed to be the cause of, of Trump winning that election. It's just statistically not possible. Um, so was there disinformation? Yes. Did it rise to the level that, you know, that it was made into after 2016? No. And this is what Facebook should have objected to is becoming the punching bag and scapegoat for this. And I remember, you know, back in the wake of 2016, there was a Facebook executive who tried to point out how ridiculous these FSB ads were. And he was yanked back from the company and sort of made to grovel and apologize. That was the moment they sort of messed up. And, you know, because they didn't fight this narrative, it took hold, it got set. And, you know, ever since for the last five years now, this this narrative of disinformation has metastasized to the point where now, you know, um, Facebook has basically been portrayed as this conduit where any bad information, anything wrong, any wrong think in America is now being blamed on Facebook. Yeah, no, it's funny. Again, this conversation is really taking me back because I, I was... Back when this whole narrative was spinning up, I, it, this is basically what drove me crazy and what drove me out of writing and back to tech because it all just seems so futile. But yeah, the Jesus memes were like ridiculously bad. Their numbers, and they actually, Facebook did release some of the actual traffic numbers. Um, what 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 the, the trick the trick to making Facebook or these efforts seem amazing is never never dividing them by any denominator that makes sense, right? Because that, that that's one thing. Again, people who don't work in Facebook don't understand that you open any dashboard at Facebook or any other truly interstate internet scale company and you're looking things are denominated in billions right everything right users impressions everything and if you, know, you just come out and say oh over the course of two years whatever this fsb facebook page got 100 million impressions it sounds like a big number and then you compare it to like oh well the eighty thousand votes could have swung the bloody blah and it's like and then you do this compa- these ridiculously fast out comparisons and you never actually look at things like well what fraction of election media did the russian efforts you know, potentially drive. And if you actually did the math and I would do the math, it's like, yeah. it's like hundreds or thousands of a percent of the total extra media, right? Like literally right. 
Right, exactly. And, 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 and furthermore, does anybody actually vote an election based on an ad they see in their newsfeed? I mean, you know, around election time, especially a presidential election, I see lots of idiots who are my friends basically spouting off on the election on both sides, right? And so you're getting all these impressions. And like, think to your own experience now. Don't think about what you think other people do, because that's a narrative. Think about what you do. Are you truly influenced by what you're going to vote? based on your friends spouting off on, on Facebook. Maybe, you know, if somebody provides a really salient piece of information that would go into your decision, but a proper, uh, an adverti- a piece of advertising from a complete stranger that on its face appears to be propaganda, is that really going to influence you? No. I mean, if, if, you, if you were to ask anybody in this room whether you'd be influenced by that, every single person would say, no, of course I wouldn't be influenced. But somehow we believe other people are influenced by it. And that this is what this whole information, this disinformation argument, I think where it really breaks down is there's sort of this my usage versus your usage dichotomy. So, you know, we know with respect to our own usage of sites like Facebook, that it's a mildly pleasant diversion. It's amusement. Occasionally there's useful information. We know it's not crack cocaine. We know it's not, you know, a nicotine delivery system. Okay. It's something that is an amusing diversion. But somehow, when it comes to other people's um, usage, we've been led to believe that they're all being brainwashed by this thing. And so, again, I would just, you know, encourage people, stop buying into a larger narrative about what the usage is. You know from your own first-party experience what these sites are. Um, right, right. No, I think that's... Um... Yeah, that's that's definitely true. I mean, I, you know, the, the counter argument to that, of course, is like, well, there is political advertising, but again, it's it's the scale issue. I think the the FSB spent something like 100k um, ads budget that year, which is like nothing. It's like it's it's literally it's right. it's, it's nothing in this of, in terms right, of exactly. Of Look, the the ads that worked on Facebook were the ads by one of the campaigns saying, "Hey, our candidate is in town this week. Come to our rally." I mean, that's the kind of ad that worked is to drive people to come out to a rally. But those were people who already were interested in the cause. Right. That's not that's not propaganda. That's just trying to organize. Um, And again, when Obama did it extremely effectively in was it 2012, uh, nobody had a problem with it. Right. Yeah, yeah, no. In fact, there's there's Guardian pieces. In fact, saying isn't it ama- isn't it amazing? And in fact, you know, I, in my interview with Zainab uh, Tufekci back in the day, um, she, she talked to Democratic strategist. She's big into you know the public the public influence of, of social media, and, and you know she was quoting uh, senior Democratic officials who thought, oh, you know, this digital thing is always going to be ours, right? Because of course the GOP total knuckle draggers. There's no way they're ever going to figure this out. This internet thing's going to be just our weapon forever. And again, when it when it doesn't become that, it's when it's a problem. Um, yeah, and, and, and as a final comment on that, it's just amazing that, again, the Russians could sway an entire election in a country of 330 million people with 100K in ad budget and Jesus memes, and yet somehow it all just disappears in 2020, right? That's it. Somehow it just it just went away. Um, and, uh, yeah. Yeah, exactly. And, I mean, it's, it's um, what, what, what is completely lost is any sense of proportion. Like you said, the, the denominator is never discussed. I mean, it's like, okay, did those ads exist? Yes. But were did they rise to the magnitude that's necessary? No. Uh, and I think something true is being, something similar is being, um, is, 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 you know, a similar type of exaggeration is being run right now around the dangers of, 
of Facebook, right? It's, you know, this whole idea that Facebook is like cigarettes, that it has that level of addiction. I mean, look, uh, nicotine is chemically addictive. Um, I'm seeing on Facebook exaggerations that go beyond that, heroin, crack cocaine, stuff like that. Without that type of exaggeration, you would never think that this is a product that needs to be regulated in that way. Um, so look, it, it is... Is, is Facebook or, or is social networking sort of uh, addictive? I mean, like as a metaphor, you know, as a metaphor, we use those terms. You know, one of the things that's amusing to me is, you know, as somebody who's actually designed social products and news feeds and so forth, we're discussing these web designers like they're like neurochemists, you know, like how they're carefully engineering the dopamine squirt or whatever. It's like, Really? I mean, these are guys who, I mean, I've worked with them. They change the padding, the number of pixels between elements. They move the comment bar around. Uh, you know, this is not, this is not like uh, neuroscience, okay? It's just not. That is a metaphor. And it's a metaphor that's now been pushed to an absurdity in order to justify uh, this new regulation. Yeah, no, I mean, it's, it's funny. It's almost like I wish, I wish Facebook ads were actually this effective, right? I mean, if, if you, again, if you look at the reaction to the whole 2016 election thread, it's like the people who knew nothing about ads, who've ne never actually managed a campaign or built ad tech in their entire lives, were perfectly willing to believe that Facebook could broad, you know, could that Facebook could brainwash vast swaths of, of voters in swing states like Ohio and Florida. And those who actually buy and sell and create ads for a living were completely skeptical of those claims. I mean, specifically in the context of Cambridge Analytica, which was, in my opinion, a total hoax and a total moral panic. Um, you know, it's just like, how could you possibly believe that unless you're wholly ignorant of of, in fact, how difficult it is to get anyone to click on an ad, right? I mean, ads are still this very statistical, fluky thing, even with the best targeting in the world. And um, again, the thought that you're going to throw an election w with micro-targeting just seems a little ridiculous. I mean, I, what, so maybe I think we've, we've we've probably covered a lot of this ground. I think one thing I want to talk about maybe, you know, one thing listeners might be thinking is like, okay, well, we get it, right? Like, this is obviously politically motivated. Obviously, the claims are somewhat overstated, but clearly the internet is disruptive in, in a big way. And, you know, my, my take, where I landed on it, and again, the last time I was involved in this, and it's weird that I'm getting pulled back into, <laughs> into this cycle, is, you know, it, look, I mean, it is a big deal. Like, I, I think comparisons with the printing press are not incorrect. And in fact, it's one of these historical analogies that the more that you read about the printing press, and I, I spent a, a period of time just doing nothing but reading about it, the, the, the more exact the analogy actually gets, right? And so I, it, it, but, you know, so what is, what is the seismically devastating thing about this? It's not Facebook. In my opinion, it's, it's just wiring every human's nervous system to everybody else, right? This little black mirror in my pocket that has everyone's eyes and ears in it, and I, my eyes and ears in everyone's pocket. That frictionlessly, you know, wiring all humans together, I think is, is kind of a big deal. And, um, to me, like the biggest kind of argument to the whole narrative that, that you've just been describing and critiquing, which is, you know, the Facebook algorithm, all that stuff is look at WhatsApp, right? At the end of the day, WhatsApp, although obviously has enormous adoption and, you know, for Americans who don't know, WhatsApp is like the way that you get online and talk to your friends outside of the outside of the U.S. You know, WhatsApp has no feed. It has no algorithmic, you know, optimization. It's got no, doesn't really have a lot of censorship because it's encrypted end to end. So they can't really selectively remove posts. It, it really literally is like the pure, you know, experiment of here's a cheap Android phone and here's a messaging platform with everyone, you know, make it as seamlessly as possible to talk to everyone in the world and share video. And you still get mayhem, right? You, you know, WhatsApp was implicated in weird election stuff in Brazil, India, all over the world. I did, I did a wired piece on it, right? So again, no algorithms required. It's just literally wiring humans together. And the reality is like the printing press, that technology's 
not going to go away, right? There's no regulatory solution to that problem, <laughs> right? Um, at least in my mind. I, I don't know if, if you have thought. Yeah, I mean, I, I think the larger disruption, you're right, there is like a, a world-changing impact here from social networking that is important. And I think what social networking has done is, first of all, is disintermediated the traditional prestige media because now you go less often directly to whatever, newyorktimes.com or cnn.com, you go to Twitter or you go to Facebook and you look in your feed and then you may click from your feed into those articles. And so the media hates the fact that it's been disintermediated by these, these social networking companies and which articles appear in your feed is not something they get to determine. It's determined by you because you decide who you're going to follow. And so you follow the information sources that are important to you. And in fact, you might find information sources, you know, like um, Daily Caller or whatever, uh, you know, who, who they don't, you know, who they compete with, who they don't necessarily want you to see. So there's this sense in which the traditional media has been disintermediated. And there's also a sense in which the common person has been empowered uh, to basically to make their own choices and to get the information they want. And of course, to also become their own source of information. And so, you know, you have these uncredentialed masses now setting themselves up as citizen journalists competing with corporate journalists, and the corporate journalists hate that. So, you know, th this is to me why Facebook and specifically the news feed has become the focal point for the Senate hearings, for the the um, for all the demands of censorship, um, for the deplatforming, for the demands now to change the news feed settings is because the news feeds where the rubber meets the, the road. It's where people get their information from. If you can control the feed, you can control the flow of information. That's what this is all about. Right. No, clearly. I mean, it, it, yeah. I mean, this is definitely the sort of hopefully dying gasp of elite media sort of, yeah, just not accepting the fact that there's not going to be elite intermediation of of mass market media, which again, and I hate sounding like the historical broken record. It's exactly what happened with the printing press, right? Um, you know, we tend to think of the printing press as the Bible, this or that. I mean, it's that's not quite the history of it. Um, for starters, Gutenberg actually was venture-backed um, and spent years and years of time. And the, the invention was much more than just the printing press. It was the type, the fonts themselves. There was no, there was no notion of a font. Gutenberg had to invent the notion of, of standardized fonts, the typecasting itself, the pressing paper. Paper at the time wasn't made to be printed on. It was made to be written on, so he had to invent paper. Anyhow, it took him years and years, wasted a bunch of money. Actually, he ended up getting booted uh, like many CEOs uh, by his backers who ended up making most of the money. He died actually in poverty and obscurity. But in any case, the, the first things that he printed or the first things that the printing press created wasn't things like Bibles or, or missiles or sort of high culture. It was a low culture, right? It was um, what the Germans call Flugschrift and uh, uh, flying words. And if you look at them, they almost look aesthetically like Facebook posts. It's like, it's an image of some outrageous thing, like, you know, the Pope dancing with a pig or something, and then some outrageous caption and some very, you know, pamphleteery, what we would now call clickbaity sort of content. That's, that's what the printing press first created. Right? It, it didn't create the Enlightenment and books and the encyclopedia and antibiotics and democracy and all these wonderful things. That came centuries later, centuries later, right? Um, and, you know, it, you know and it, I often ask myself, like the thought experiment, if you, were to, if you were to ask your average, I don't know, Central European peasant, in, you know, in the 1620s, say, was the printing press a good idea? You'd probably get very mixed answers. Um, 
in, in the 1620s, in fact, is when the Thirty Years' War was going off, which for those who aren't familiar with the European history, was this horribly violent, bloody conflict that tore apart all of Europe as Europe tore away from the sort of Catholic religious order. And there was the rise of nationalism in Germany and Protestantism and a bunch of stuff happened. But the net result of it was massive, violent upheaval. And, you know, things did not look so peachy <laughs> in the post-printing press world up until you got to like the 18th century and, you know, the Enlightenment and all the rest of it. And so I think... It's just interesting to me that we're we're so in the middle of this thing, and it, it seems to be it seems to be a feature of people in moral panics that they don't realize that they are in one, <laughs> and that people have panicked about the the sort of thing that they're panicking in the past, and the world did not end. And it's it's funny given that we actually have way more historical you know perspective than people in the 17th century did, thanks once again to this dastardly internet that puts all the world's information at our fingertips. It seems like we should have a little bit more of a perspective on it and and realize that in some sense, overreacting to the supposed dangers of Facebook were, you know, in some sense, threatening, you know, the very magical things that, I mean, the printing press created, like liberal democracy, freedom of speech, whatever. Um, but yeah, I mean, it's it, the, the paranoia and hysterics around this just drive me crazy. <laughs> That's why I had to stop writing about it, because I just I could not understand it. And, and again, I, I think it's a real, you know, the, again, the smartphone is, is a big disruptive force in world history. But the thought that we're going to regulate ourselves out of it or that, like, you know, Facebook's just going to fix this. If they just hired more ops people, they would just fix it. It's like they've been saying this for five fucking years. Do you feel right. that, uh, you know, whatever, you know, malignant effect that Facebook has on the world, has it gotten better or worse? Or <laughs> have we solved that problem yet? I mean, it's a ridiculous thought that we're just going to solve the problem. And that's it. It, it, it feels almost like the Catholic Church thinking it can literally ban the printing press and make it go away, which, of course, they, they tried to do and obviously failed. Right. It. Um, yeah. Well, the, the the point, the historical point you're making is is similar to what Neil Ferguson wrote about in the the Tower and the Square. Um, the it, you know the tower represents hierarchies, the the square represents networks, and you know he writes that there's a historical tug of war between uh, hierarchies and networks, sort of duking it out for power. Clearly, social networks are a type of of network, and they threaten to. Uh, circumvent, uh, disremediate the traditional hierarchies. And that's why they're very threatening to the people in power. And that is why you see the people in power trying to assert, um, you know, a, a, they're trying to reassert control over these networks. And, 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 and the antidote is always some sort of uh, tyranny of experts, right? It's, we're going to create this government oversight board. It's going to be populated um, by people like Hogan, um, she effectively report to people like the chairman of the Senate Judiciary Committee, and that's what's going to basically put the genie back in the bottle. Um, you know, if we've learned anything over the past year, it's that uh, how wrong experts can be about just about everything. And so, um, you know, I, I, I don't I don't think that's that's the answer is to sort of superimpose this um, sort of elite expert opinion uh, to determine what we get to see in our in our news feeds uh, and who we get to hear from. Uh, which is which is basically always what the proposal is, right? So here's a question for you, David, because I, I think you probably have probably have views on this. Something I've been asking myself recently. I always like doing this thing where I just pull back the zoom to like the thirty thousand foot level to see the bigger theme. So one thing that strikes me in all this, right, is that, <clears throat> like you said, you know, here's this mid level PM who you know knows some things, but she's not super senior. Whatever, she turns whistleblower, instantly gets a congressional. A hearing. There's this massive animus against tech, not just against Facebook, but tech more broadly. I mean, Elon just went to Texas and all the California politicos are dumping on him for abandoning California and whatever and maligning his motives and on and on. 
one thing that strikes me is like, why is it that broadly, whether it be impact on SF local politics or whether it be federal regulation of tech companies, just to be a little introspective here, why do tech companies suck at the, the sort of political human angle of somehow conveying what their industry is about and just to get a little bit, you know, hard nosed about it. Why aren't they good at the political skullduggery that typically, you know, an industry that literally has like the top five most valuable companies in the United States, we're talking trillions of dollars in market cap, right? Like that is economically preponderant. Why, why do they get kicked around? <laughs> like, you know, the nerd in the, in, in the, in the, in the playground still, it just seems odd to me, you know, in the oil industry, in Houston say, you know, they, they don't, they're not at odds with local government that, you know, the CEO of Chevron isn't being dragged into Congress every other week to answer questions about whatever the hell's going on with one of their, you know, uh, oil platforms, it, you know, the wall, wall street in New York also doesn't get kicked around like tech does And like, what, what is it? Is, is it, is there something unique about the animus towards tech or is tech just, is it a bunch of, you know, nerdy guys who in some sense just disregard all that in the favor of creating a new world and ultimately that bites them in the ass when that old world doesn't quite doesn't quite die as they hope it does and then suddenly again as you said all the ceos have been dragged in front of congressional testimony to be sit there and sanctimoniously drilled by you know geriatric mm -hmm. senators like what why is it that tech just doesn't doesn't follow other industries and kind of throw its weight around in an effective way well, it's interesting, you know, if you read Glenn Greenwald's substack on this, you know, the way he describes it is that um, the, the people in power in these, uh, the congressional committees, the administration, they're trying to commandeer the power of big tech. So I would say that big tech has become a target because it has the power, it has a power that um, the, the, the real people in power want to harness and utilize. They would like to use it to stifle their you know political opponents and control online discourse um, but big tech doesn't r have the r real power i mean the real power legislatively in the courts things like that um to defend itself and so um you know glenn links to an article by a guy named curtis yarvin who has an article about this and he kind of calls it power leak which is that facebook is basically leaking power because again because it has tremendous influence over online discourse but it doesn't really have the power to defend itself and therefore it attracts all of these attacks it attack it attracts attacks by people who would like to seize commandeer and usurp the power that it has to control online discourse mark zuckerberg doesn't want to control online discourse and yet he's been pushed to engage in censorship why is that because he doesn't really have the power i mean the point that Glenn makes and Curtis make in their piece is that Zuckerberg has power over online discourse the same way that the low-level content moderator who works at Facebook has, has power over it. I mean, think about that content moderator. They get to interpret Facebook's policies and, you know, at the edges, they have some influence over where, whether somebody gets kicked off or not, but no one really blames the specific content moderator for that decision. They understand that they're just implementing Facebook's rules. Well, whose rules is Mark Zuckerberg implementing? Not his. I don't think he wanted to engage in the censorship. He's been hauled in front of the Senate Judiciary Committee four times, and they've lectured him and told him in no uncertain terms that unless he gets with the program, they're going to break up his company. And, you know, they're going to unwind the um, Instagram acquisition. They're going to un unwind the WhatsApp deal. Uh, you know, they're making these threats at the very same time in the very same hearings where they're telling him they're lecturing him for not censoring more. 
I mean, how does he walk away from that without understanding what they're saying? They're making him an offer that he can't refuse. Um, so, so that is what's going on is that just like that content moderator has gotten his marching orders from Zuckerberg, Zuckerberg has gotten his marching orders from the real people with power, the people who control the courts, the people who control Congress. Those are always the people with the real power. That is what's going on here. Right. Um, right. I mean, the, re- the real world bites back, right? <laughs> the guys with the, uh, the guns in the jails win to some degree. Um, yeah, that's a little depressing, David. Um, <laughs> I had another question. Well, that it's funny. You- it's bipartisan. I mean, the ultimate proof of this is bipartisan, right? Now, I mean, I think Democrats and Republicans have different concerns, but, um, you know, it, the, the pressure on big tech is coming from the political system. I don't, you know, I, it, it also does come from the bottom up from the employees of these companies, employees like Hogan who believe that Facebook and, and these other big tech companies are not censoring enough. Uh, we've seen that over and over again, that there have been boycotts at these companies. So um, I don't want to say that she's specifically woke, but there's definitely been, as well, as you well know, petition writing campaigns over and over again from the woke employees of these companies to try and push their companies to censor. At the same time, you've got the top down power of government uh, pressuring these moguls. And I think, you know, this is the element of the debate that probably has been missed a little bit is um Everybody's been lashing out at, at these quote-unquote oligarchs so much. And, and there is some validity to that. I mean, I, I do wish that Zuckerberg and Dorsey and the rest had more spine. It would just stand up more for the First Amendment. But on the other hand, I don't think this idea of censorship originated with them. Yeah, I mean, I think, yeah, no, no, of course. I mean, that, that I think, you know, Zuck doesn't want the job of chief censor of the Internet. Um I mean, I, I think one of the, again, to pull back the Zoom lens a little bit, I think one of the issues here, I think why there's a little bit of a, why I feel that like people are actually in some sense supportive of government um, censoring is that everywhere across society, right, you're just seeing that the government is ending up regulating what the government, what the, what, uh, sorry, the co- companies are actually regulating what the government used to, right? I was making this analogy uh, yesterday to somebody because I, I watched the Chappelle show, which, um, you know, speaking of, you know, getting canceled or whatever, you know, he obviously got a little bit of flack for, you know, uh, sticking his finger in the sort of eye of what are the current, you know, woke norms of speech or whatever. And, you know, it made me think that like the equivalent of that 40, 50 years ago would have been somebody like Lenny Bruce, who was like literally arrested on stage by like the NYPD for obscenity or whatever. And, you know, the, the person that used to yank you off the stage used to be a government official that was in theory subject to the judiciary and, you know, representative democracy and all that, an expression of popular will in some form or another. And now it's corporations who do it. And, you know, and obviously corporations are not, demo- not democracy. I mean, they're, they're beholden to their shareholders weekly, but that's, that's it. And so I wonder how much of the, how much of just sort of the political strife around this is just people like I, like I, I for example, didn't like the fact that Facebook has what they, what they informally call the Supreme Court, i.e. some private conference room where they decide what is or isn't hate speech or what is or isn't acceptable. Like, wh- what about the argument, just to take the counter argument to what you're saying, what about the argument that, in fact, you know, the, the choice is either Facebook's going to do this or the government's going to do it. Why shouldn't it be the government that, in some sense, is an- answerable to somebody in the way that Facebook isn't? Or, or do you just not buy that argument? Are you, are you don't think that's even a concern? Well, well, the, the question is, what is it? You know, what, what is the specific regulation that, that you're talking about? I think if we're going back to like the Lenny Bruce example, let's talk about that for a second. So I think it has always been the case that communities have wanted to enforce their own standards of, of decency. 
there has historically been friction, um, you know, uh, between community standards and creative freedom or freedom of the press. And we've ha- we have a lot of case law going back on that. Um, I think what's a little bit different now, and if, if we're to analogize this to the to if we're talking about the present, is I don't think it's the community standards that are being enforced here. I think it's something different. I think it's basically the woke mob standards are being enforced. And the, the way this works is that you have um, this, this very online group. They're very politically noisy and they engage in moral indictments of anyone who disagrees with them. And they sort of intimidate and cow their opponents into silence. And that that is really what's going on and those are the people who want to grab control of the machinery of social networking and the news feed in order to enforce their view of what should be allowed and th- that to me is the the great danger here um you know of, of 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 where this is all leading is we should just understand that there is a coordinated effort to engage in censorship and it is by a a um by a political group that I, I don't think is anything close to the majority of the country, but is very effective at um, silencing their critics. Yeah, no, I, I was having that same thought because I, I woke up this morning and like I, like I mentioned, I mean, it's not like a secret or whatever, but I, I interviewed Ben Shapiro for, for pull request. And I, I know I'm going to have to write like an exculpatory sort of piece saying, why did I talk to Ben Shapiro? And, um, and again, I'm fixating on him because a, because I talked to him and B, um, you know, most most public data shows that he does very well on Facebook, right? Like his, his I mean, he's more than just one person. You know, Daily Wire, which is like his media thing, does better than the big net, all the big networks you can name, you know, CNN, ABC, whatever, like the top 10 posts on Facebook, like five of them are Daily Wire slash Ben Shapiro things, right? And Yeah, I, you know, I, I, I keep going back to the Coinbase 5%, right? That, you know, one of the few CEOs to, um, you know, show a backbone was Brian Armstrong, where he basically said, listen, the, the point of, he didn't declare a political agenda, he just declared that Coinbase would be a politics-free zone, that when you come to work, you work on the mission of the company, not on political activism. And they basically offered a generous severance package to anybody who wanted to leave. Uh, very ge- generous. 5% took it. That was sort of the noisy, squeaky wheel that was roiling the company and creating all the problems. It was not 50%, it was 5%. That is really... That right. the, the the cohort that we're talking about, but their importance has been exaggerated by the fact that they are full time political activists and they do try to hijack and take over these institutions, whether they be companies or nonprofits or what have you. And um, and so yeah. Well, but 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 one thing I would object to that analogy, David, is that I mean, yes, I mean, in the case of Coinbase, people come to work and by and large don't want to don't want that to be an expression of their political selves. I think you're right to say that there is five percent squeaky wheels who want to turn their jobs and their slacks into like political activism. And I think most people, whatever their views are just like, no, this is not a form for that. But again, if we're talking about Facebook, it, it is a form for politics, right? Like, it, I, I don't think you won't get 95% of people saying, oh, I, you know, yeah, we shouldn't talk about politics on Facebook. They, they want to talk about it, right? And, and the reason I was, I was citing the Ben Shapiro thing is that I think a lot of people would object to his politics, but I was reading his books and it's like, it's like the most conventional normie, right of center, blah politics ever, right? If you think Ben Shapiro is right. the devil, then you think that like every doctor in Boca Raton is also, you know, <laughs> satanic. It's right. Well, it's, it's, it's because it's because one side of the political spectrum is not interested in having a, a debate. They're not interested in an open marketplace of ideas where best idea wins. OK, <laughs> their goal is to demonize 
anybody on the other side of the political spectrum so their arguments aren't even taken seriously. It is to turn Ben Shapiro into the other that you know, their tribe hates. And so they will demonize right. and otherize right. any, you know, thinker who's prominent on the other side. The goal is not to create a marketplace of ideas. It's to shut down that marketplace. It's a different kind of censorship. You know, it's, um, it's sort of, um, it's sort of like a social censorship. It's an ostracism. Um, the, the, you know, that, that, that's basically what we're dealing with. You know, you should always question the people who don't want to have the debate. You know, it's just what I would say is like, those are the people you have to be worried about. Right. Okay. They, I, I think we're we're probably getting close to the end of time. I know you've got a hard stop at 11. And what I was maybe thinking is I'd use a feature of Colin that I've never used before if you're up for it, which is actually take a question. Um, yeah, let's let's do it. So I've got a hard stop at 11 because i got to tape the all-in pod. Okay. Um, so I think we maybe we'll minutes, take like so, maybe one or two questions. Yeah. So click, click the phone icon if you want to ask a question. Uh, please keep it concise. Is the, is the caller queue tur- feature turned on? Uh, shit. Uh, let me see. How do I? <laughs> it should be, unless you turned it off, it should be turned on. If, if anyone out there wants to ask a question, just click the phone icon and we'll get a caller. Olivia just said thumbs up, but does that mean, are people frustrated in that they're trying to ask questions, but they can't? Um, I don't know. I'm surprised that there's no questions. I'm a little surprised too. It makes me think that I misconfigured the room. <laughs> mm. I, I probably can't change the room on the fly, right? No, you can. Yeah. You can. Just go into edit room and just okay. make sure that... Yeah, no, uh, caller queue is on. Caller queue okay. is on. Wow, nobody wants to ask a question. Okay. Nobody wants to ask a question to either me, me or David. Really? Wow, okay. Huh. We have four minutes. Um, I'm wondering, is there, is there a bug or something? This is surprising. Here we go. Oh, no, no, okay. we, got, we got him in. Okay. Let me... Um, how do I invite, invite to speak, I guess, or make next caller? Just uh, make next caller. Cool. All right. Hey, can, you, can you hear us? There you go. Yeah, I can hear you quite clearly. Can you guys hear me? Yes, yes, we can. Okay, this is Haven from Toronto. So I'm curious, like with all this whistleblower stuff, is there some sort of a law that's there where they reap any benefits of any cases? I'm just curious, like, is, it, is that going to cause another Yeah, we, 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 Yeah, we, we covered this at oh, the beginning. Yeah, I mean, the, there, 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 are, there are laws about entitling whistleblowers to a portion, something like 30%, I think, of the fines that are levied as a result of their accusations. So, um, you know, Antonio and I aren't accusing this whistleblower of being motivated by that, but she does stand to make millions, hundreds, potentially hundreds of millions or even billions because the fines coming arising from this. You've got to imagine that there'll be huge settlements, right? Uh, Facebook will pay anything to settle this issue. So she does stand to make a lot of money. Yeah, I mean, we cited the numbers. I think I, I looked up on the SEC website. The biggest whistleblower payout in the whatever past n years has been 111 million dollars, and they, they actually have a, a total awarded amount and total number of awardees. And the and the rough average was something between two and three million dollars. Just the average, I, and I assume the distribution is highly skewed. So yeah, the payout can be. And again, not to not to say that that's why she did this, but if you're asking about like what what are the what are the upshots of being a whistleblower? Yeah, there are some very real ones. So let me, uh, we got a little bit of time left. Let's um, have uh, Chris be the next caller. Chris, oh, Oop. did he disappear? I made him a caller and then he dropped off. Yeah. I don't know. I think I think he tried to unmute himself and maybe he hung up. Oh, there he is. <laughs> oh, he's back. He's back. All right, Chris, try again. Here, make, there we go. Just unmute we got, yourself. We got two minutes, Chris. Okay. Hey, so what happens, sorry about that. I hit the wrong button. What happens if they are successful in... Um, in, in 
institution governing bodies to send what's going to happen. And I think the same way is that the one side, whoever's in power, can control or see whether it's the or anti-freedom of speech. Like what's that seems like it's it's those wheels are turning, David. And I'd like to hear your thoughts. And thank you for the all in in this app. Awesome. Yeah, I mean, I think that so. So the you, you broke up a little bit, but I think the question was around what happens if this government work gets established, and I think it it will be the camel's nose under the tent of uh, more government involvement in in the online flow of information. This board will start pro- uh, prescribing rules that social networks will have to follow in terms of content moderation, in terms of newsfeed settings, and they will continue to uh, have an outsized influence over who gets to speak online and what gets to be said. Um, yeah, I think I think one thing we've forgotten is that you, you should always design laws under the assumption that your worst political enemy is actually going to implement them, right? And I think that's getting a little bit lost in the conversation. Um, that again, with Facebook itself, Facebook was great when it helped one political side, um, and then not so great when it didn't. If you're actually passing laws that says the government can actually mute shit on Facebook, imagine your worst political enemy had that button. Do you still want that button to exist? Right. And I don't think we're, we're asking ourselves that question. Right. Exactly. It's always very short term. What it will benefit is the political class, right, of both of both parties, ultimately. But one thing I will tell you that this government body will not do, and this might be a good note to end on, is solve any of the underlying problems. If you're concerned about the growing divisiveness in our society, uh, this will inflame it because you will see um, that the censorship, as it has been, will tend to run on one side of the political spectrum, thereby further inflaming that side of the political spectrum, it will not solve any uh, anything to do with the increasing polarization and sort of um, the divisiveness in our society because the media, the traditional media is fueling that. Furthermore, you will not see any improvement on body image issues for, for teen girls. That is a real issue, but I don't see how censoring Facebook or Instagram is going to solve that problem. I don't even know how you would censor it exactly. Um, and, and, and regardless of what you do, it's not going to change anything because you've got Hollywood and TV and the fashion industry and the advertising industry all promoting certain standards, standards of beauty and creating pressure on young girls to, to look a certain way. And that's not going to change unless you actually want to have much more sweeping regulation to restrict what all of those industries can show teenagers. And so what you're really talking about there is it's actually a conservative social agenda. It, it is, you know, it's what Tipper Gore wanted on steroids when she proposed, um, you know, regulating uh, rock and rap lyrics. Um, you know, it would be a much more sweeping traditional social agenda implemented from government, sort of like what Xi Jinping is doing in China. That's what you'd have to do if you'd want to do that. But historically, liberals have not wanted to do that. Um, that, that has been something prescribed by religious conservatives. So, you know, we're seeing... Uh, we're seeing uh, a lot of these uh, political activists sort of switch sides on that issue. Yeah, we've somehow gone from, you know, the Tipper Gores of the world wanting to center things to, I don't know, the AOCs or whatever, a whole different part of the political spectrum. Well, I think with that cautionary note, David, it's probably a good, good point to end. I know you've got your podcast to do. Thank you, everyone, for, for tuning into this last minute thing. If you're a pull requ- request subscriber, um, well, if you're not, subscribe to this show. And then also uh, on Substack, I'm going to do a post about this um going out probably right now uh so thanks again and thanks david for 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 joining pull request it's always it's always fun wrapping with you all right see y'all thanks appreciate it